Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, all. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with you. And as usual, I want to start with a disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes. It does not constitute working with a licensed mental health professional. Strongly suggest you find one in your area to work with. And don't be shy to also explore online and not talking about things like uh, some of the big companies, but online therapy. If you cannot find somebody in your area that best suits you, there's people all over your state who are willing to work with you virtually. So today's podcast, I want to introduce you to someone who (laughs) I've known for a while, and we've had this dance off every so often when life takes us one way, sooner or later, something brings us back together to talk and uh, do these, Uh, and also a fellow geek, blurred interested in the all the science fiction fantasy but that's not why we're here actually here to talk today but they my uh guest today has written a book and it is psychologically focused and i think it's a good thing for everyone to hear it so i'm going to introduce you today to darlene hall phd Darlene is a Black lesbian psychologist with a strong social justice value, has 30 years experience in the nonprofit sector as a direct service provider, senior administrator, intern coordinator, founder and consulting work with and and has consulting work with communities that are disenfranchised, including people of color, low income, women and girls, children and youth, LGBTQ people and people who have been homeless. Currently, she has a private psychotherapy practice and consulting business, Intersectional Consulting, providing consulting, training, and facilitation, training assistance, and coaching in mental health organizations, development, capacity building, program evaluation, program development, leadership, and the like. Uh, Sorry, (laughs) lost my place there for a second. Uh, Some of this work includes providing workshops and training on expanded trauma frameworks at conferences for single organizations or for cohorts composed of multiple organizations, facilitating process groups for staff to reduce secondary trauma, helping staff create self and organizing care practices to reduce secondary trauma, and aiding staff as they incorporate her models into program design and activities. Because life is not life, or because work life is not life, Darlene feeds herself spiritually by playing sports, reading, writing, watching Star Trek and other sci-fi fantasies, <laughs> enjoying musicals, volunteering in her communal community, learning to speak dog, and spending time with people who make her laugh, like she's laughing right now with the uh, sci-fi <laughs> aspect. So Darlene, welcome to Untying Knots. Mine's and Souls and Tether. Yay, glad to be here. Great. Glad you could do here and uh, looking forward to being able to have a chance to talk about your new book. So how did you get here and into all of this? Well, I'm going to start with I was born in 1965. I knew when I was 13 that I wanted to improve the self-esteem of women and girls. Mm -hmm. I declared my major in psychology in 1985. In 1997, I graduated with my uh, PhD in clinical psychology with a minor in multicultural and community. And in 2000, I got licensed by the state of California to be able to practice psychology. 
In relation to the book, how I got here was in 2013, providers, mostly frontline staff and after school youth development programs were needing more information about trauma because they were working with a lot of young people impacted by trauma. And they asked their funders for help. And those funders actually reached out to me. Mm -hmm. And that began the journey that has led to this book, which actually took seven years to to write from the minute I first started writing it in 2016 into it getting published uh, just a few days ago in uh, May. Very much so. So unfortunately, I can't say whether we're going to have this episode out in May or if it's going to be a little later exactly. in summer. But yes. this book is available by the time you hear this on at least Amazon to be able to find it. Then. So what is the title of your book? So the title of my book is Youth Development Theory and Practice, Integrating a Trauma Framework, a Social Justice Approach. Okay. So what is the focus of this book? So we can start beginning to give everyone context about looking at it. Yeah, so the focus is, and again, it comes from the work that I have done with after-school providers, mostly frontline staff that are working in these programs with young people who are impacted by trauma, but they're not mental health professionals, and Mm -hmm. they don't know anything about trauma, and they were trying to figure out how to work with these young folks in ways that, in my language, don't re-traumatize them. So Mm -hmm. all of that had, you know, resulted in me wanting to kind of put together all of these years worth of trainings and workshops and coaching and technical assistance that I have done with these uh, staff and these programs into one place. And originally it was going to just be a book, but then Mm -hmm. because I do a lot of, you know, handouts and a lot of hands-on activities for folks and resources that are really practical, Mm -hmm. I ended up also creating a workbook. So Mm -hmm. the workbook cannot just be by itself in the sense that there's no context. It's just full of lots of exercises and guiding questions and specific examples and handouts mm-hmm. that be used kind of immediately by, by folks. But the book is where the theory and the practice comes in. And it's all grounded in youth development theory and practice. And youth development is a thing. I'm not just talking about young people. Mm-hmm. Work. I'm actually talking about a particular theory and way of working with young people that's about 30 years old. Gotcha. So you said you're working, this book is really focused for those who are kind of some of the frontline people and that they don't get the training in psych- psychology, What do you, or at least having an understanding in trauma. Why do you think that is so missing in their training? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, historically, <laughs> what I've experienced is that these are part-time positions. Sometimes mm-hmm. there are folks that maybe they're going to school for something. They are, you know, after school programs are like from what, 3 to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. And maybe mm-hmm. full time in the school year because of you know, the regular school day is out. But mm-hmm. a lot of these folks, they're not, they're not the they're not teachers, right? These are not credentialed mm-hmm. teachers, and they're often more transitory. So they're in this job maybe for a year or two, and maybe they now finish school and now they've done something else and moving on to something more full time. So mm-hmm. that right there in of itself is part of the challenge. And I know like there are some places and and San Francisco was one of these that was really trying to lift up youth development and Mm -hmm. creating an academic program around it. I know they were working with San Francisco State around that, but Mm -hmm. that's not common. And so just in general, you have folks that maybe they like working with children or they just need a job to pay bills and they end up in these environments and realize, wow, this is a lot. So just by the very nature, they don't have formal training around trauma. 
Gotcha. Yeah, the number of like they're trying to get there, like you said, they're in school. Doesn't even mean they're in schools for subjects working with youth. They may be in a civil engineering, but they need something to, you know, like you said, pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And while it's also well-meaning to be able to want to help the kids and so forth, it doesn't exactly do well if they don't also understand what they're actually working yeah, on. That's what I think was so fantastic about what happened 10 years ago. You know, I, despite all my education, I identify and everything, the way that I do things is really bottoms up. And the way that these, you know, this work for me started was because these, these, these staff, these frontline folks were saying, we need help. And mm-hmm. then that request got to me and I started at, you know, doing an hour and a half on trauma at all of these youth development conferences and mm-hmm. it really just expanded and, and more from there. So how would you begin to define that aspect of the, what is trauma for those, for the layman sense? Because obviously I'm sure there's some other therapists and so forth who will listen to this, but for those who aren't, especially some of our geeks out there who might be listening to this, how are we better defining and understanding trauma so that they can know what this work, what this book is and what we're talking about so they can suggest it to others, or if they actually want to go and help at an organization like this, they can go in more informed. Wow, so that's big. So yeah, I know. In my model, I have what I call from a stress to trauma model. So for mm-hmm. me, everything is grounded in stress. So mm-hmm. understanding what stress actually is is the beginning of it. Because when I think about trauma, I think about it one as a severe stress response. But I mm-hmm. also, you know, in the big book that people like you and me are are taught to use to diagnose, you know, mental disorders. The one form of trauma that I talk about that is in that book is in our section around anxiety disorders. So Mm. trauma is related to anxiety as well. Uh, But in my trauma, excuse me, stress to anxiety to trauma model, it it builds on that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. all stress doesn't cause anxiety, but it can. And all anxiety doesn't lead to trauma, but it can. And mm-hmm. in, my, in my model, I talk about six different types of trauma. And what I mean by that is that these are six examples of human experiences that can lead to a trauma response. And a trauma response is just a fancy way of saying trauma symptoms. And so I don't know if you want me to, you know, go in briefly go so, into what those six types are. Yes, please. Because I think that's going to be useful for people to begin making that distinction because <laughs> For those who also haven't studied, had, had philosophy courses or some of the early ones, talking about the, um, I think it was Plato, or it was it Socrates, the cave. I can't help you there. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, but the, the cave analogy that those who lived in the cave and saw the shadows would think that this is a certain type of world until they step out of the cave and realize it's a very different world than what they were seeing. And so this understanding about what we were taught as being useful stress versus destructive stress is something that I think is very important. So briefly talk about what those six different types are would be useful. Yeah. And what I want to also just say is that when I think about stress, I don't, I don't believe in useful stress because Mm -hmm. when I think about stress, knowing that ultimately the the definition of stress Mm -hmm. comes to, comes to us from medicine and Mm -hmm. it's literally at the cellular level, like what is happening. And if folks remember from their biology classes, Cells come together to create tissues. Tissues come together to create 
organs, organs come together to create organ systems and organ systems come together to create a human being. You mm-hmm. and, me. and so in psychology, we talk about two types of stress. One is what people normally think of, like these negative experiences that overwhelm us and tax us and make us feel like we're at our wits end. But mm-hmm. we also have another type of stress called eustress. And this mm-hmm. is the stress that comes to us from positive or worthwhile tasks that we may look forward to and enjoy like publishing a book. (laughs) (laughs) And the key is that we've got to remember that whether it's stress or you stress, and I'll use the language of stress, but I do mean both. Mm -hmm. What it is doing, it's having a negative impact on our body. And there's so much research in recent years that is connecting things like inflammation to a Mm. lot of medical and psychological uh, challenges and, and sicknesses and diseases because Mm -hmm. in because our bodies were designed originally to you know the fight or flight response that's a stress response Mm -hmm. that response is a natural hardwired biologically in us response to uh, life-threatening danger Mm -hmm. the inflammation response is a naturally hardwired biologically supposed to happen response to injury and mm-hmm. we are supposed to be in a stress response for a short amount of time. I mean, seconds, minutes, maybe hours. But flash, flash forward to now, there is so much what we call psychosocial stressors in our lives because most of us right. are not being chased by the lion or the bear anymore. Right. You know, we've got so much other stuff going on. And so our bodies are like under siege, right? Like we're constantly, for many of us, in the state of stress that that may become our baseline level of functioning. And then mm. people wonder, why do I keep getting sick? Why do I have an ulcer now? You know, why am I depressed? Why am I anxious? You know, why am I crying all the time? Like all of that stuff is related to the body saying, I can't handle this. This was mm. supposed to be over a long time ago and mm. it's not. And the body has to adapt. And at a certain point it breaks down and that's when we become sick, whether it's physically sick or whether it's psychologically sick. And so mm-hmm. that is part of the framework where trauma for me is placed is that yes, there's psychological aspects to trauma, but in terms of symptoms, but there's also the physical. And so when I say that trauma is a severe stress response, understanding the stress response in that it's supposed to be short-term, we're supposed to be spending most of our life in a rest place. But knowing that many of us do not, this world is chaotic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's stressful. So, and to that end, those who consider good stress would be the you stress you just mentioned, but to still frame it as being something that is supposed to be good for us. And let's be frank: how many times have we heard this in relation to our economy and work? Yeah, can't even go there because yeah, I know because I know ultimately you stress is also having a negative impact on our bodies mm. and our psyches. And, and again, I'm jumping ahead, but it's why care is so important to me. Mm-hmm. And in particular for folks that are working with young people impacted by trauma, because the last form of trauma I'm going to mention, anybody in that work environment is going to be at risk for this last form of trauma I'm going to mention. And mm-hmm. so the more that we are able to practice care, the better we are able to mitigate the impact of stress to mitigate mm-hmm. the impact of, of trauma. Um, so so I'll, I'll be brief. This yeah, let's, trauma let's, that- Let's go through these are, six types. Yeah. And again, these are just human experiences 
that can lead to a to trauma symptoms or a trauma response. Mm-hmm. And this is my current categorization. Talk to me in a year or 10 years, maybe it's changed, but this is what mm-hmm. it is so far. And the first one is PTSD, which is becoming a lot more in the common language, right? People's vocabularies, even if they don't really know what it means. <laughs> um, but it stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. It, it came to mm-hmm. us from, you know, combat war veterans mm-hmm. in World War II. And the definition that I use is not necessarily the one that the big diagnostic book uses today, but it's mm-hmm. the first one that I learned that I, I actually like. Uh, and so it's basically when we experience an extreme trauma where we think ourselves or somebody close to us was, and I mean, physically close to us was going to die or be seriously injured. Mm-hmm. And, you know, war obviously is one example of that, but, you know, car accident, bicycle accident, difficult childbirth. Yeah. Or even domestic violence. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a many, many other experiences that can lead to PTSD. A complex trauma is the next one. And again, I use this very differently than a lot of folks use it. And for mm-hmm. me, I use complex trauma to refer to abuse, which mm. is both children <laughs> and adults, right? So neglect, right. emotional, verbal abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse. And there can also be financial abuse in that too. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of relates to my next one, which is multiple <laughs> losses. And multiple yep. losses is repeated losses that can happen through death. Hmm. or non-death experiences. So I first learned about this in relationship to AIDS and gay men who were losing Hmm. lots of friends and partners and community to that virus in the late 80s and Hmm. early 90s. Examples of non-death related losses that can happen over and over in people's lives that potentially can lead to a trauma response includes things like the finances, right? The finances are up and down and up and down or having to move mm-hmm. a lot or being evicted or you know, mm-hmm. people to incarceration or deportation or, you know, lots of job losses or uh, romance, you know, lots of relationships. Right. So the key with multiple losses is it, the it's repeated. It's not just a one-time thing. And it can be multiple losses in one area of a person's life or a kind of combination, right, of, of mm-hmm. multiple areas coming together. It's a compounding impact. I know I've been working with some of the clients I've been working with grief. I've talked about them. The idea is that you're dealing with multiple grief cycles going on with just this, say, one passing. So yeah, it's difficult because there's multiple things you're losing, not just that individual you're losing that in the way that individual connected with your family, connected socially, connected into the other. Yeah. Yeah. All of these are multiple grief cycles that are going on yeah. and that they're revisiting. That's why it feels in this place, the compounding yeah. or multi-loss grief. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the fourth form of trauma that I mentioned in the book is intergenerational trauma. And again, mm-hmm. all these different things, but I like to keep language really kind of simple and easy to understand. Mm-hmm. So for me, intergenerational trauma is this original trauma and the coping skills that we mm-hmm. use to survive it or hopefully mm-hmm. even thrive that gets passed down the generation. And a, a really quick, important thing about intergenerational trauma is the further we are away from the original trauma, we often stop talking about it. But mm-hmm. what we are left with are those coping skills that now we are see we see them as tradition and culture and heritage, the mm-hmm. way we are, the way we do things, and sometimes even the way things have always been. 
when that isn't mm-hmm. necessarily true. So it can mm-hmm. be really challenging or be experienced as taboo to question those behaviors because they're so embedded in culture now and we're not thinking about the impact. So take, children, for example, we are generations, you know, we got years to understand the, the intergenerational impact of COVID mm-hmm. uh, because the generations haven't happened yet. But you mm-hmm. think about things like uh, slavery or the Holocaust or, you know, genocide of indigenous folks or people who are descendants of Japanese Americans who were interned on this mm-hmm. land, right, during World War II. That stuff is here with us today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Yeah, because I know Rosemary Minikin talks about that in his book, but just that sense that too, how do we also then start looking at when people are defending these, cold, shall we say, these generational cultural traditions of this coping, when there are the when we can see that there are places where it's actually being harmful to us. Absolutely, absolutely. Like I in the book, I talk about you know five questions, and one of those questions is, does does this behavior lead to health? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean just survival, but I mean health, because mm-hmm. survival isn't always health. No. So, you know, it's being willing to really dissect and and be considered breaking a taboo, right? Or, or going against a, a taboo or mm-hmm. being considered you're the one talking about the things we're not supposed to talk about, uh, which, you know, this whole book is is that. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, not gonna, we're not going to move towards health doing the same old, same old. Exactly. And also to add to that, too, um, actually, something you said earlier, we often talk about fight and flight because those are the active things. And generally, we like to feel active in doing something, but we can't forget there's also freeze, which is even though it's passive, it has its own mechanisms of survival, too. And when we're dealing with especially the intergenerational trauma, we may also be dealing with somebody who's frozen. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm gonna come back to my last two forms of trauma, but when I talk about the trauma, that's okay. When I talk about the trauma symptoms, I I have a dual framework for that. And Mm -hmm. one of them is what I call the five Fs and it stands for fight, flight, or freeze. And it was to a fear that leads to fuzzy brain. So absolutely Mm -hmm. freeze is a trauma response. Hey, we're on the same wavelength, just oh, yeah. jumping oh, to different yeah. places. So what's oh, yeah. next on that list? Okay, so the second to last one, you know, just like intergenerational trauma is very much rooted in things like oppression and colonization. Mm-hmm. My second to last form of trauma, I call sociocultural trauma. Mm-hmm. And this is a trauma that's related <laughs> to living day in and day out with oppression. Right. For those of us that are part of communities and identities and experiences, factors, characteristics, whatever we want to call them, that have been deemed less than, given less privilege, less power in our society. These are all those isms, phobias, the bias, and the bigotry. These are where my four levels of oppression come in, uh, just huge. And I know psychology, <laughs> I laugh because, I mean, this stuff is not, none of this is new, but in psychology, mm. in like really, really recently, like mm. really, really recently, they're starting to use language like racialized trauma, right? And tra- trainings on racialized trauma as if this is something brand new. Right. But they're not talking about uh, the trauma from patriarchy, the trauma from homophobia, you know, mm-hmm. the trauma from classism. 
2022, they're just on board with racialized trauma. I mean, anyway, I, I, that's right. a whole other conversation. But that's what this one is about, is that oppression hurts. And it mm-hmm. easily can lead folks to have a trauma response. These first five that I've mentioned, mm-hmm. some folks may refer to them as like primary trauma or uh, personal trauma, because these are things that directly happen to us. Mm-hmm. The last form of trauma I mentioned is not. And I call it secondary trauma. Some people may Mm -hmm. call it vicarious trauma. But this is a trauma that we experience secondhand from other people, critters, and things. So Mm -hmm. something didn't have to happen to me, but I can still develop trauma, still get trauma symptoms. And the thing about secondary trauma, which is another reason I like that language more than vicarious, is Mm -hmm. it can impact us two ways. One is that, like I just mentioned, I saw something on the news that now got a trauma response in me, but it can also activate our own personal trauma or primary trauma that we think we have already dealt with or resolved or figured out. Mm -hmm. So those are my six types. And again, human experiences that can lead to a trauma response, not exhaustive, but that's kind of where I am. currently. Right. And so then it's recognizing in the youths how and which one of these, and it can be more than one, is occurring for them, which also means the way they're responding may be in response to number two when you're trying to address number five. And in my framework, I, to me, this is so big because of all those I listed, PTSD is the only one that's in the diagnostic manual, right. which means in our very academically oriented society, if it's not written down, it doesn't exist. So those five that I mentioned that are not in that book that it can be more difficult to get resources to get help because mm-hmm. it's quote unquote not written down. But on the other hand, what's positive is that it's also harder to pathologize, right? To make mm-hmm. be as problematic because it's not in that big book. So when I think about my framework, yeah, one person can have all six of those experiences. Very much so. The symptoms of trauma, those are not specific to the type of trauma. You know, mm-hmm. the symptoms are there. These are just the symptoms of trauma, whether it's coming from secondary, whether it's coming from intergenerational, whether it's coming from PTSD, the symptoms of trauma are the same. And in that big book, it doesn't care about where things come from. Like I care mm-hmm. about, you care about where things come from. Why are people the way they are? You know, that big book was historically written by white male psychiatrists. Psychiatrists are part of medicine, focused mm-hmm. on tangible. You and I, are in the realm of the intangible, right? We do the work to try to understand what's causing, you know, people's distress and challenges. And so that's why to me, those six types of trauma, it's important mm-hmm. because now I'll know, okay, this person may be, you know, dealing with PTSD because they just got through having a really horrible experience with COVID and they almost died, or maybe they did die and got brought back, or maybe, you know, like with young people, they're experiencing all kinds of oppression, whether it's racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, that matters. You know, again, I mean, this book is written by a licensed mental health professional, but for non-mental health professionals. Right. And that can include, you know, teachers, athletic coaches, church leaders. Like, I'm not expecting these people to, to do what you and I do. And I, t- mm-hmm. and I say to people, whenever I do, you know, my work with these folks, you know, your job is not to ex- assess, diagnose, or treat trauma. 
I do think it's important to increase your knowledge about it and how it improves mm-hmm. practices, and also to know about community resources that are available to refer first folks to, which is where you and I, people like you and I come. Mm-hmm. So I really want to take the pressure off of the folks that read my book, because again, it's not for mental health professionals to think like, oh my God, I have to know all this about trauma. No, it's important to mm-hmm. know that what may be going on with the young people that you work with may be related to trauma. It might not be, but it might be. And this mm-hmm. book helps people to understand behaviors that they experience all the time that here's another possibility of what may be going on and what are ways they can work with young people to reduce re-traumatizing them. Mm-hmm. That's ultimately we- like we're trying to make folks better, not worse. And when we don't know, we can unintentionally be making people worse. Exactly, exactly. And I think there also comes to that example of the difference between, again, psych- psychiatry and what we do is that biological medicine has a set you know, measure of how tissue rebuilds and so forth. And yet the traumas people can be dealing with, especially depending on how they've built defenses around it, how built the coping strategies around it, can take longer and may need more than what would be done in a diagnostic medical model or things where you can't throw a pill at it. You can't throw an injection at it. You can't throw a surgery at it. Here, here. <laughs> and, and that's where you and I come in. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, personally, and I'm clearly biased, but we do the hard work. You know, mm-hmm. giving somebody a prescription, that's easy. They see them once every 30 days or six months or whatever, put refills. We do the hard work because we're actually holding and containing folks around these really painful experiences to help them to move through them and work through them and understand them and integrate Mm -hmm. them. And, you know, one of the other things that my, you know, the book is about, but also when I'm doing work with organizations and staff is I tell people like, I'm giving you resources and I want you to share this with young people Mm -hmm. because many, even though, you know, young people are a lot more savvy and smart nowadays, but in a lot of ways, and for certain of our communities, we're still internalizing that there are things wrong with us. And so these trauma symptoms, which you know we haven't yet talked about, but these trauma symptoms can lead them to being mistreated by other people around them, whether it's their family, mm. whether it's their teachers, athletic coaches, people in their faith communities, their friends, like anybody, because they don't understand. And so mm. then they start to believe well, there's something wrong with me. Maybe they get name called, right? Based on their, mm-hmm. their trauma symptoms, they start to internalize that they're crazy. You know, mm-hmm. so now they're growing up with a crazy button. And so my thing is share this information with them, teach them about this to take the pathology out of what mm-hmm. is happening, to give them information, to help them to understand. You know, in our field, we call it psychoeducation. I strongly believe in that. And I do believe that the people that read the book or folks that are in my audiences and and work that I do around trauma, uh, they can do that. They don't have to be a licensed psychologist to share these six types Mm -hmm. of trauma with people. You know, there's, again, all kinds of of, of activities that are in the workbook that that can help to support. I mean, there's so much, uh, but we, we, first of all, cannot be afraid to talk about it. And if we're not dealing with and aware of our own trauma spots in our own lives, 
that can inhibit us because we don't want to get close to something that may activate us, right? So mm-hmm. for me, everything starts with the the staff in, in these programs or teachers or church leaders, whoever these adults are that are non-mental health professionals that are working with young people impacted by trauma. It starts with them because we have to do our work so that we can do right by the young people. Mm-hmm. Which also means recognizing where they're also equally still dealing with trauma that they didn't realize. And Absolutely. that becomes part of the maladaptive coping that becomes culture and tradition and yep. such. And that can show up in programs or exactly classrooms or sports teams. Exactly. So I think that's a great place for us to take a break. So stay tuned, folks, for our second half here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark here with Dr. Darlene Hall. So we'll be back shortly to continue this discussion. So stay tuned. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Hello, all. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls and Tether. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with you. And our guest today is Dr. Darlene Hall. And we have been talking about their book, which is entitled, screen back up there, Youth Development Theory and Practice and Integrating a Trauma Framework for a Social Justice Approach. Now, in our last half, we talked about the six different types of trauma. So let's talk a bit about what those symptoms look like. And of course, they can be showing up in any one of these categories, and you can have multiple of these categories going on. Yeah, and there's no particular order. Everybody's unique, and what we experience is different. So I just, a really brief overview is, you know, the way that I think about the trauma is in two ways. And the first way is kind of the traditional way when I first Mm. learned about PTSD in school. And the acronym is RAP for re-experiencing avoidance and the physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. So re-experiencing are just experiences that we have that are intrusive, unwanted, and repetitive that keep reminding us or, or, you know, having us relive the trauma over and over and over again. 
And so mm-hmm. that could be, you know, feelings, it could be sensory experiences, it could be memories, it could be dreams, which really are nightmares. It could be people, situations, events. It could be what I like to call those, 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 the questioning, you know, why did this happen to me? Why did I survive and they didn't? You know, how is this possible? Like, what if I would have hit a motorcyclist versus a car? Like these things are just replaying in our minds over and over again. The rumination. The rumination. Um, you know, some people may have flashbacks and a flashback is not a memory or a thought because if we're just thinking about something or we're remembering, we know it's not happening. But mm-hmm. people can have a flashback where it feels like it's happening right now. And we may be doing behaviors like we're talking about it over and over and over again, or we're writing about it over and over again in a journal, or our paintings are about it over and over again. And what's basically happening with re-experiencing, I like to say the brain's trying to make sense of nonsense, is that mm. our, you know, where this is residing is more in the emotional centers of our brain. And the brain wants to try to understand and integrate the experience. And that's in a completely different part of our brain which I call mm-hmm. these high level uh, brain functions that are in like the tippy tippy front front of our brain. Mm-hmm. But while the brain is trying to make sense of this and integrate it into our lives, this re-experiencing stuff happens. And for some people, this really leads into the next symptom area, which is avoidance. So now all those things and feelings and experiences and people and behaviors and thoughts and memories that remind us of the trauma, we now avoid them. Because mm-hmm. we want to feel better, we want to stop hurting, and we want to feel safe. And a lot of these behaviors, they may not be uh, healthy or functional, but they're what a person is doing at any given time to support themselves. So I always encourage people to not be judgmental about mm-hmm. experiences and, and avoidance. And we do this in a billion ways. I just want to mention two. Okay. One is emotional numbing. So now we just cut off all of our feelings because it hurts too much to feel guilty all the time, or it hurts too much to feel sad all the time or scared all the time or enraged all the time. For some folks, they just allow one feeling in. So maybe it is only guilt or only sadness or only shame or only rage. And they cut off all the others. And and to be human, is to have access to this wide range of emotion and feelings. And with emotional numbing, I don't want to hurt anymore, so Mm -hmm. I'm cutting things out. The only other avoidance behavior I'm going to mention is the use of substances. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'm I'm drinking, because even though I I may not know drinking or alcohol is a depressant, it really isn't going to help me, but it lifts me up and it makes me feel like I'm invincible, and that's a lot better than feeling scared. Right. Or maybe I'm taking speed so that I don't have to sleep at night, so I don't have to have nightmares about what happened. And the which challenge, could, you know, mm-hmm. with substances is it can lead to addiction, right? Which now causes mm-hmm. more challenges in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Right, because there comes to that act. Going back to what I was saying earlier too about people like to go to fight and flight because there is an active, there's engagements, there's something that makes them feel like they're doing something. They're empowered they're doing- versus mm-hmm. versus a passive approach which also includes the aspect of why i think freeze offense gets dropped off of when we're talking about those just in general that no one likes to think that they're being passive and yet there are ways that passive keeps the body alive as well too Mm -hmm. and so in that that realm avoidance because you know the 
the second framework that my five Fs, there's some overlap in, in, in the symptoms or what it can be experienced like, but in avoidance, you know, when young folks or adults are withdrawing or they're isolated, mm-hmm. that can be a trauma response of, 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 of this kind of freezing because I'm now I'm moving away. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with young people, I call it like, I don't want to, I don't want to be um, obvious. I don't want to be, um, it's like that saying, you know, if you don't see me, you can't hurt me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that freeze response, a way of making someone self invisible. And sometimes that shows up as being the good worker, right? The good student doing mm-hmm. all the things that are right so that I'm not noticed. Like that mm-hmm. potentially is an avoidance response related to trauma so that there's just less visibility. There's less, um, attention that's being drawn to self. So it may not always be literally, uh, I'm stuck because that's going to come up in my next framework, Mm -hmm. but there's other ways that I think that freeze can show up in avoidance behaviors as well. And as again, it's about making myself feel better, feel safe, survival, (laughs) Mm -hmm. not wanting to hurt anymore or be hurt. Mm -hmm. So, so the last symptom, uh, cluster for the wrap, which is P, which are the physical symptoms. And going back to my stress to anxiety to trauma model, stress is in our bodies. So when people feel tense or stressed or anxious, they can feel it anywhere, right? Have headaches or migraines or, you know, the heart beats fast or hyperventilation or sweatiness or muscle tension, GI distress, you know, jumpiness. Someone touches you and you jump 10 feet. Hypervigilance, which is this, this the body's on high sensory alert. Mm-hmm. This and more, having trouble sleeping, oversleeping. Mm-hmm. And what I like to say about the P is that it's the body's alarm system telling us that something is wrong. Something's not safe. We may not always have access to those higher level brain functions that and other brain functions that allow us to know, oh, this is what's going on with me. Oh, I'm having a trauma response, you know? We don't always know it, but all of a sudden, my my you know guts are acting up. First, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. listen to our bodies, and I recognize for many of us, there's many reasons, including complex trauma, where we have been disconnected from our bodies, or have been socialized to stay away from our bodies, and so part of this work for me, just around trauma in general, is the importance of getting close together to the body again because it's talking to us, and we've got to start listening. Well, which becomes also one of the issues best with our field, where for so long it has been about the top down. So the neocortex, which is essentially the last section of our brain and most recent section of our brain that has developed versus things like the brainstem and the limbic system, which are older sections of our brain. They developed far earlier and far longer, and they're doing an analysis at the speed several times faster than that neocortex. Yeah. And that that's a tippy tippy front part of the brain, right? That's the part mm-hmm. that I call where those higher level brain functions reside. And again, going towards health, we've got to slow down that limbic system and brainstem to be able to bring in these higher level brain functions. So because that's where things like impulse control and empathy and self-awareness and insight and judgment and rational thinking, mm-hmm. like all of these things and so much more reside. And yeah, they're the last parts of us to develop 
which is a great segue into my second framework around trauma symptoms, which I call the five F's. So Mm -hmm. now this is about when we are in a trauma moment right now, like it's happening in this moment, what happens to those higher level brain functions? And what can happen is they go awry and they don't work so well. Mm-hmm. And, and when we start know, getting dissociation. That fuzzy brain, right? Five degrees mm-hmm. in response to fear that leads to fuzzy brain. So mm-hmm. now all of a sudden that the I've lost my ability to have impulse control in the way that I normally do, or I'm not thinking so clearly. My memory is a little fuzzy. I'm not able to, to plan and, and have insight and judgment in the same ways. My attention's off. You know, and and sense of self is also a part of these high level brain functions. So, and I, and when I talk about in the book, maybe we're working with a young person five minutes ago or yesterday, and they were full of confidence, but today they don't believe they can do anything right. And you're Mm -hmm. like, what happened? That may actually be a trauma response in relationship to these five F's and the fuzzy Mm -hmm. brain. So it's huge. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's really, it's huge and it's big. And again, I'm not expecting people to memorize all these different responses, but I do like to, you know, in the book, share information so that things that folks I know are observing in their programs or their mm-hmm. classrooms, there's a new context for it that maybe the reason why all of a sudden they don't have confidence or why they have a stomach ache right now that they didn't have five minutes ago is because they're in activity with somebody that might bully them back to complex trauma, right? In their mm-hmm. school day. And now in their after school program, they're in this group with them. And you don't, as a staff, necessarily know that they're being bullied by this person, but this young person now has a stomach ache that they didn't have five minutes ago. Or, mm-hmm. you know, there's two other areas of the brain that are not a part of the high level brain functions, but they are a part of our motor skill area in the brain that can also be impacted by trauma. One has to do with speech and one literally has to do with movement. So back to mm-hmm. phrase, which keeps coming up, literally, mm-hmm. it can be, I can't move. I'm stuck mm-hmm. here. Or it can be, I can't verbalize what's going on with me. So, but I had that tummy ache or all of a sudden I'm starting to, you know, hyperventilate, which for some folks can turn into a panic attack. That has meaning. And, and so to me, both ways of looking at trauma symptoms are important and there's overlap. And just remembering that it, that where the trauma comes from, it doesn't matter. Any of those mm-hmm. forms of trauma can have any of these symptoms. There's no order. Yeah, and everybody's different as to how we express it. But fundamentally, that trauma, that response, all of those things are happening on a level faster than cognitive thought. If, yeah, I mean... <laughs> And conscious thought can be shut down. Like that's the mm-hmm. fuzzy brain part. Uh, so paying attention to the body is really important. If someone doesn't have body symptoms and if they're willing to try to become more aware. And again, the, my workbook has so many different handouts that help folks to become mm-hmm. more aware of how trauma may show up and how stress shows up in their lives mm-hmm. to help increase that self-awareness. And again, these are things that can also be used with young people to help them to become more aware so that now they're like, oh, I want a book. Oh, maybe that's a trauma response, right? Mm-hmm. Be aware of that. So let's segue into one of these other areas because you talked about, oh, you may not realize that the bully is there. Mm-hmm. So that gets into the aspect of oppression because mm-hmm. the bully is the representation of oppression, depending on whatever circumstances and is. 
Uh, I believe in your book, you list there are four types of uh, oppression. And if you, if we can, can we start showing more of the, and I think you showed some of that with these six different types, but the interlinkage there. Yeah, so for me, um, I call it the four levels of oppression, which are personal, institutional, uh, excuse me, personal, interpersonal, institutional, and structural. And mm-hmm. oftentimes what I find is, you know, scholars and the academics want to just focus on the top two levels, institutional and structural. Um, to me, that's problematic because everything that happens at those top two levels comes from who we are as individuals. Mm-hmm. So that personal level relates to one's own thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in relationship to all those isms and phobias and, and bias and bigotry. This is what gets externalized to other people. This is what determines the procedures and policies that we create at an institution. Um, and it's also at the personal level where internalized oppression a lot resides. Mm-hmm. Right? This is where we come to believe all that ugliness and negativity that out there says about us. Mm-hmm. You know, that next level interpersonal is now we start interacting with other people. So now it's, you know, those thoughts, feelings and behaviors about uh, these isms and phobias and bias and bigotry that we now dump on the other people and mm-hmm. they dump on to us, hence sociocultural trauma. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that third level I mentioned institutional, it's more abstract and theoretical. And what I mean is not that the harms aren't real, but that institutions are very hot. The idea of an institution is abstract. So Mm -hmm. for example, any place a person goes to work is an institution, an agency, a school, but there's also more intangible institutions, things like economics, right? And Mm -hmm. health and, um, you know, uh, religion and media and family, like there's all kinds of other institutions that aren't just the tangible where I go to work each day. And that's Mm -hmm. what I mean about it's more theoretical and abstract. Not that the harm isn't real, but it'd be harder for people to identify, oh, that's an institution. Uh, And then structural oppression is when multiple institutions are coming together to reinforce these privilege and power dynamics. Or, you know, in institutional oppression, one institution is doing it, but multiple institutions come together to keep oppression alive at that structural level. Mm -hmm. When I think about young people, Again, they may be suffering, and I mentioned this earlier, from internalized oppression in relationship to how they've been treated, mm-hmm. names they may have been called, mm-hmm. they may be kicked out of class, out of program, off the team because of their trauma symptoms that nobody understands. So now they may be coming to believe that there's something wrong with them or that they're crazy. That's an example at that personal level of, interpers- of uh, internalized oppression. At the second level, then a personal level, you gave a, a, a horrible but great example of bullying, right? Mm-hmm. Now we're dealing with interactions. And, you know, for a young person that doesn't know and isn't getting help around their trauma symptoms, you know, a lot of trauma makes us feel powerless. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways that this can get expressed is by bullying somebody else to get a sense of, of personal power, right? And that's horrible, but it happens. It happens. Um, yeah, and sadly, the other thing is that for some cases, that powerlessness causes people to build institutions that end up ultimately also becoming the bullies and the providing the structural violence. Is like every institution is built off of people. Yeah, they're good qualities, but sadly, also they're bad qualities. Exactly. Or these qualities that are 
causing more trauma. Absolutely. And, you know, when I talk about, you know, I've been doing trainings on power and privilege for like 25 years. And when I talk about the four levels of oppression, what I always say about those last two institutional and structural is that we cannot take the people element out of it. Mm -hmm. Institutionalized racism, structural homophobia, those are abstract concepts that can make it seem like we can't undo this stuff. And so I always remind people, we cannot take the human element out of it because it is people that are making up all those laws and rules and regulations and policies and practices that become how any institution functions. Mm -hmm. And so therefore it is only people that can undo it. And so all that harm that happens, we did it and we did it to each other. So we're the only ones that can undo it. And so when I think about, you know, young people and in trauma in these programs is, and, you know, the institution that they're a part of, whether it's an after-school program, whether it's an athletic program, whether it's a classroom at a school, mm-hmm. a church group, is what are the policies that are there? Because people made those up. And are they harming, further harming, further re-traumatizing young people? Or are they actually really designed to help them? And, mm-hmm. and my hope is that the way that I have written this book, it will help people and the workbook and all the guiding questions that are in there help people to actually start to critically think about are our policies helping or hurting, you know, the young people that, mm-hmm. we, say that we care about. Mm-hmm. And at my, the last one that I want to mention is at that structural level. And this is where I, I bring in funders mm-hmm. because funders of these programs, again, whether it's schools, whether it's these after school programs, whatever it is, they have to change and do everything differently Uh, Mm -hmm. because the way things are now, their funding is hurting. Their funding is causing harm. And it's the opposite of, again, what folks say they care about, but they're doing the same old, same old, which actually ends up further giving harm to the young people in these programs that are impacted by trauma. Could you give us at least one or two examples so people can start, again, conceptualizing and seeing that more in a grounded sense? Yeah, so in in I have a chapter in the book on funders, and my refrain is, is do things differently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the things that funders can do differently is give more um, general support funding. Sometimes mm-hmm. we call it core support or operational support. And this is funding that goes to an institution. And again, right now I'm thinking like after school programs, but it can happen in education too or wherever that allows the grantee, the, the organ institution that's receiving the funds to spend the money however they require, they need it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not telling you, you have to spend the money this way. And that allows these leaders to allocate the money where it actually needs to really go. So there's a lot of trust that's inherent in general support grants uh, that when I was in the funding world, because I spent six years as a program officer in philanthropy, general support grants were, were not very common And when I left that world, they were becoming even less common. Um, Another thing for me that's really important has to do with money. You know, Mm -hmm. funders need to give more money to these organizations that work with young people impacted by trauma, like these after-school programs, so that they can hire more staff. Because, you know, 20 years ago, the ratio of staff to young people in youth development was one to eight. With a trauma framework superimposed on that, it needs to be one to three or one to four. Nowadays, that ratio might be one to 15. If you Mm -hmm. think about a classroom, that's like one to 30. 
that's horrible. That it's, it's horrible. So there needs to be more money so that more staff can be hired so that these institutions can create like a, a like a cadre of on-call staff mm-hmm. so that they can rely on these people when their their regular staff call out. Um, I'm also one of my biggest fantasies <laughs> as someone who's a mental health provider and a former funder is mm-hmm. that funders also give money for mental health care for frontline staff. So this is like a subsidy that can you know help support. It doesn't have to be psychotherapy, but it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, also encouraging to get funding for real staff retreats that mm-hmm. are about rest and relaxation, not work. You know, mm-hmm. if you go to the woods to do a three-day strategic planning, that's work. That is not de-stress. We need to support these folks being able to rest. So how about let them go out to the woods or some, you know, the ocean or whatever it is where they actually get to relax. Like mm-hmm. what a concept, right? Um, and- Which comes back to the aspect of that's not the you stress that the, that hasn't been exactly touted that it is that they think yeah, it is exactly and and there's a few that i want to mention funder do things differently practices mm-hmm. that have nothing to do with money mm-hmm. and the first one is there needs to be a lot better relationship building with these institutions that work with young people impacted by trauma mm-hmm. because traditionally with funders we do a lot of work around before we you know give the money and then you don't talk to anybody again until they get their report right. that won't work like these funders have to take the initiative to build relationships with the staff at these organizations to learn about what's really going on there to build trust so that these the staff there will actually tell the truth when something doesn't go according to plans because that is guaranteed to happen when we are mm-hmm. working with young people impacted by trauma so building that relationship and i recommend you know you're checking in with these organizations monthly you know, mm-hmm. no, no less than quarterly, but I like, you know, monthly and it's, it's, and it's got to come from the funder because grantees, because of power and privilege dynamics, they don't tell the truth mm. <laughs> because they, yeah. they don't want to lose their funding. Right. Well, the fear. Well, Cause you, yeah, well, it's fear. And it's the aspect of would be that, how is that any different than a kid finding out that uh, they broke something and the parent is screaming at them for breaking it? Yeah, and that's the thing is like that's the fear, and and I know the way that I did my grant making and the way that I built relationships was really different than my colleagues. You know, part of that's just who I am as a person. Part of that's mm-hmm. about me being a psychologist. But I developed these relationships, and part of it is that I speak truth to the power dynamics. You know, I know that they're real. I know that folks don't want to tell me the truth when I was in that role, and so the onus was on me to try to build trust so that I can, you know, hear and learn about what's really going on in a program, as opposed to reading a report that maybe people said things, or maybe Mm. they lied there too. So that Mm. relationship building to me is really important. And that's free. Um, I also want to encourage these funders of these programs to redefine success. Mm -hmm. You know, Americanism is all about bigger and better. When we are working with young people impacted by trauma, smaller is better. We need smaller outcomes. We need a smaller number of outcomes. We need to recognize that trauma slows down and derails the best laid plans of any program or organization and how that's going to impact outcomes. So, mm-hmm. you know, we need to be more nonlinear and we need to recognize those quote unquote small successes as really big. 
Mm-hmm. Which comes back to, yeah, which very much comes back to what we were saying, the difference between uh, based in medicine, where you know what the rate of tissue growth can be versus the rate of repair growth from these emotional traumas not following the same things. Nope. These metrics don't follow the same thing, which nope. we see in some of the other institutional structures we hit with things like, why isn't your therapist taking that insurance company? Or they yeah. don't want to work with that insurance company. Yeah. yeah, our work is way slower, way longer. And again, these are providers that aren't mental health providers. They're not doing mental mm-hmm. health work mm-hmm. they do, right? Mm-hmm. So this to, to use the same criteria that a funder would use for some other program that was way more well-resourced, that had theoretically less trauma, it's not fair because ultimately these folks do risk losing their funding because those funders don't understand mm-hmm. and they're not trying to understand. Um, and the last thing I want to say, which relates to this, is that funders, they have to be willing to learn from the staff at these institutions and primarily from frontline staff because they're the ones that are working most closely with these young people. Mm-hmm. And everything that I talk about in my chapter on funders goes against traditional grant making, everything, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is why social justice is my second part of my title, because we've got to be doing everything differently if we really want to support these young people that are impacted by trauma. Which means, Bill, which also results in how we build institutions differently, and we don't have institutions for sort of supporting structural racism. Or anything, you know, homophobia, mm. classism, all of it, you know, all, all of those of things, yeah. which still comes down to also how much ha- are we having the sense that fear is still coming up for us, no matter what age we are. And how yeah. we respond to that is something that is human. Yeah. And I want to create and help create a world where, first of all, trauma doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, where all this, these isms and phobias and the bias and the bigotry is gone. And, and I know that I won't see it in my lifetime, but everything that I do personally and professionally is trying to move towards that. And mm. so with the book, my expectation is not that these people are going to uh, be the be all end all for these young people. But one of the things that I talk about, because I talk a little bit about brain development in the book, and I call it the biological basis of hope is you know, folks that are working with these young people, every interaction they're having with them is that it builds the potential for these new pathways to be strengthened or developed in the brain that can help these young people start to navigate their world in ways that are less what I call knee-jerk automatic trauma responses, right? They're getting out mm-hmm. of their automatic fear response. They're getting out of that automatic you know, stress response, or getting out of that automatic fight, flight, or freeze response. And the way that the brain grows is through repetition with the outside world. And so mm-hmm. people that are in these, these, the staff that are in these programs, they have an incredible opportunity. And it, and, and it can feel very frustrating because again, our work is slow. You know, we're not given a shot. We're not, you know, taking something out of somebody's body by surgery we're actually trying to literally help people grow in their world and what the growth that we're talking about and then areas of growth, social, emotional, cognitive, and moral that youth development cares about. Those are all areas of psychology. It's all mm-hmm. psychological growth and that's all in our brains. Mm-hmm. And so for me that these you know folks holding on to the biological basis of hope is really important because, because it can feel like every day is like starting over. 
it can feel frustrating. And so I like to remind folks that every day, what's potentially happening at that brain level is mm-hmm. strengthening and creating connections in these young people's brains that maybe weren't there before. Right. And that is powerful to me. Right. And all of that is not always going to be happening, especially if we have our system, other systems that are in these young people's lives that are also mal- dealing with the maladaptive coping. Yep. Yeah. And so like, the workbook's got all kinds of just concrete activities because I, you know, there's mm-hmm. a whole chapter in the book that's devoted to skill building, you know, within mm-hmm. context. And the workbook has a lot of really practical skill building activities that can be used. And, you know, there's no way that I can talk about every skill, but, you know, I do talk about a few different skill building areas that I think are really important for young people impacted by trauma mm-hmm. in relationship to emotional, social, cognitive, and moral development. And in relationship to the cognitive um, development, I talk about uh, social justice. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> how mm-hmm. could I not? <laughs> um, because this is a part of making the world different. We can't keep doing the same things over and over again. So, you know, popular education and doing activities that start to teach young people. And you can start with six-year-olds, right? Mm-hmm. And there's parts of the book where I'm talking about the difference between equity and equality and fairness and, you know, all this stuff that you can talk about with a six-year-old or a 16-year-old and broadening and, and changing how we view ourselves, which starts at that personal level. It just goes upward because those people are our future and they're going to be mm-hmm. making policies. And if they're making policies from a trauma-based place, that's not going to help anybody. If they're making policies that are actually designed to make the world a better place and support human beings, then yeah, our institutions will change. And again, this is just Mm -hmm. one little small group of people. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, this is what, you know, I believe why I'm on this planet is to help move all of this along to make the world a better place for all Mm -hmm. of us, regardless of who we are, because we're going to be the ones making policies and procedures and laws when we get into those institutions. We make it. Mm -hmm. So it, it starts with each of us at that personal level or nothing will change. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, it's a lot. It's big, yeah. but this yeah. is just trying to really support these young people and these these institutions and programs uh, from nominal health professionals that don't have the knowledge that you and I have to help them to feel more confident in what they're doing and to reduce re-traumatizing young people. Very true. Well, I think that's a great place for us to start wrapping up. Where can folks get more of the book? Um, so the book and the workbook are available on Amazon. I think you're going to provide the, mm-hmm. the links for that. So that's yep. the, that's the I'll be putting that in there. Um, and if they wanted to also get your other services and such, where can we find you? Yeah. So again, the name of my business is Intersections Consulting. And you can always send me an email at intersectionsconsulting at gmail.com. Feel free to look at the website, which I believe also will be a link mm-hmm. to this podcast. And, um, and I would love to love to hear from you. Perfect. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on and talking about these things. And hopefully we've gotten some other people to, again, to start thinking about this. Because as long as you can start thinking, start recognizing it, we have a chance to change it. Absolutely. And otherwise, also remember the definition of insanity, which is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different response. Which I will say that is my definition of social change. 
not mm. doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different response. Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind, Pooks. We're trying to get through these times and get out of this insanity. So stay tuned and uh, be well. And I have some more episodes out there for you. So this is Untying Knots. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist. And our guest today has been Dr. Darlene Hall, PhD. Thank you. Take care, all. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.